Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Violet Luca, digital editor, and today I'm joined by... Uh, Eric Hines, freelance journalist and associate curator of film at the Museum of the Moving Image. And Nick Pinkerton, freelance journalist, and that's it. <laughs> Sometimes contributes to Film Comment. Sometimes contributor to Film Comment. Lovely, lovely feature on Roberto Minervini's uh, The Other Side in the new issue. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, it's great. <laughs> another masterpiece i've done it again <laughs> well congratulations to you and your family so today we're going to be talking about films that depict history in a way that's getting to sort of a tactile fully lived in sense of history or at least attempting to the impetus for this is Whit stillman's love and friendship and although his films are typically known at you know for their very distinct, unique dialogue that is either very appealing or totally repugnant to you. There's no in-between. You get a sense throughout his career, he's really trying to capture a sense of a time, you know, last days of disco. Manhattan in Metropolitan, even though it's sort of filtered through Mansfield Park. And then in Love and Friendship, it's this really, really carefully created world of uh, Jane Austen. And so maybe we could talk about other films or filmmakers, or even with Stillman's films, uh, what makes them distinct and not just sort of like a film that is just people wearing old-timey clothing? Like what makes, what helps capture and convey history in a tangible way? Well, to start out with one of the films that you cited, I think Metropolitan's an interesting case study because the movie came out in 1990. And ostensibly, I suppose that's when it's set, but I've never fully, to my satisfaction, figured out when the movie is meant to be taking place. There's none of the obvious period signifiers, but some of the things that are spoken about, for example, Boonwell's discreet charm of the bourgeoisie, is talked about as though it's a movie that is making the rounds presently. And a lot of the kind of cultural signposts that come up would suggest that it's taking place when the director himself was an undergraduate, which is to say, I think, 18 or 20 years before the movie was made. So in one sense, it is very much a kind of time capsule of Manhattan at the end of the 1980s, I recall. In the commentary track on the Criterion DVD, he talks about the fact that they made a point of going and shooting in places that were, you know, some of them about to close down, like this luncheonette that appears in the film. You see the old Scribner's building, which is very shortly to become, I think, a Sephora. And there's a very concerted effort to kind of get down some aspects of a disappearing Manhattan in 1989, let's say. But at the same time, there's a lot that indicates that the movie is, you know, taking place sometime in 1973, 1974. So that's a very curious instance. Well, I mean, my understanding is that it's sort of a deliberate slippage between those two, Mm -hmm. you know, which is that there certainly was no budget to do a period piece. So maybe why there was like, well, let's embrace the, the slippage between these two eras or these two possible sort of ma- versions of Manhattan. But yeah, I mean, I, I know that he made effort, like there's, the, there's a 
there's a scene where they get into a taxi cab. He made sure that that was a sort of older taxi cab, not an 80s taxi cab, just to sort of allow for that sense of, but I think it works in that, I think it really, really works with that, with those subjects, because there are people who are not really of that time mm-hmm. as it is, or living in some, you know, hard to define era or continuous era or holding on to a culture that was dying or had already died. Um, so it made sense that if they were in the late eighties, that they're out of time. And if it is the early seventies, that somehow it doesn't quite feel like that either. I don't know. It seemed to really work. In that really, but I actually feel like that, that holds in some version for a lot of his films. Like I don't actually feel that last days of disco is very convincing as an early eighties setting. You know, that feels very much of the moment that it was made as much as it feels like the early eighties. Um, and and then Barcelona places itself at a very distinct moment, which is at the moment where Spain, I believe, is discussing signing on mm-hmm. to NATO or OTAN. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so that's and and it's true, like uh they do exist in a couple of different time periods. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I think that's also true of uh, that slippage that you're talking about is also true in a film like La Captive. And I, I always found that the male character, the lead, you know, he has these very old suits, this very old car, and these very old ways of, you know, treating women, but he can afford, to, he can do that because he's extremely wealthy. And that is sort of built into the critique. I thought it was such an interesting way to reconsider the text that she's she was working with. Yeah, I mean, the important thing always to bear in mind is no period is wholly itself. It's the accretion of the generations that have immediately preceded it and the various detritus that, you know, comes to us. I mean, you see it walking through any city center. I mean, no no city is purely 2016. It is the accumulated, you know, layers, the uh, accumulated sort of palimpsests, uh, and a good period picture tries to bear this in mind. Right. I mean, it always bothers me when a period piece is basically trying to get everything that's stereotypical of that moment into the frame. Sure, yeah. They, they came in, they went into the prop shop, and they said, you know, give us 1932. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. And you have, yeah, you have FDR on the radio. And, and you're considering the, you consider the, the economics of, of, of that time, and most people are probably wearing 10-year-old clothes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, exactly. Or some combination of 10-year-old and 7-year-old clothes, and maybe 20-year-old clothes. Right. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm wearing jeans that are at least 10 years old at the moment, and last night wore a 20-year-old shirt. I mean, like, that's, that's what we do. I mean, yeah. And, and, I mean, you'd mentioned uh, a little bit ago James Gray, who's always fantastic about this, in... I mean, in shooting, for example, in the yards, a contemporary to 2000 New York City, it's full of these little pockets, these office spaces, for example, or these uh, like uh, church basements. He's always very good with sort of civic ceremony. And <laughs> uh, Aren't the best filmmakers, aren't they always? <laughs> yeah. I think there's an Ernie Anastos uh, cameo in there. <laughs> um, yeah, you, that's that's deep knowledge of New York at that moment. Yeah, but you, you you have this very very heightened attention to the degree to which, uh, again, the the sort of detritus of the past it doesn't just get you know thrown out with every new calendar year, 
and in some of these, you know, old business back rooms, it's all manila folders and filing cabinets and everything feels palpably like 1965 has never gone away. The Stillman films make me think of this, but I think almost any film that is set in the past, when it becomes the past in itself, offers that those two eras to revisit. You're revisiting the moment when this film was made and its idea of the past as well as the past. For the, even for the worst possible movie, that's rich territory. And it's, a re, and it's a great reason to revisit things. I mean, I think you can look at different eras of filmmaking and there tend to be trends about how those eras considered the past. Look at, look at the 80s and the way the 80s depicted the 50s. And like there's a, pretty, there's a consistent vision of what, that, what the 50s were supposedly like, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know, I'm not sure at the moment what era we're obsessed with and what era we're sort of coalescing around and what that vision is. But I'm sure it's wrong or, or, <laughs> or skewed in some way. But that's great because 20 years from now, it'll be amazing to look back at this, these movies. Well, I feel like we can't get over the 70s for whatever right. reason. Yeah. Like, because it's like yeah. there's the new, um, oh, I can't remember the name, but it's uh, Ryan Gosling and uh, that Australian guy who fights everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, you lost me. No. Russell, Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe. Yeah. Oh God, they fights everybody. Oh, okay. like you mean like throws phones at at hotel attendants' heads? Got it. I actually was specifically thinking of the South Park episode, Russell Crowe fighting around the world. But anyway, wow. that's my that's one of that's a point of reference for me. Anyway, you, you know the South Park Russell Crowe better than you know Russell Crowe. Yes, <laughs> it's it's probably Fair better. Enough. Can I ask where this is going? Uh, no, <laughs> but, they, but that film, they, they have a new film where they're like buddy cops, and it's set in the seventies, and it's like there's very li- it's a comedy, but very little of the content of the film or the conceit of the film, the way that they're dressed. Everything is very much like American Hustle, which is very much like Anchorman, which is very much like any other movie that has ever been made about the A lot of polyester, a lot of arrow collars. It seemed like yeah. the costumes were taken right from Starsky and Hutch. Right. It's like, which was already like a the bit ben of... Stiller, Owen Wilson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where it was sort of like an exaggerated <laughs> version of like, let's mock this totally fine TV show because that's what makes it hip. But where it seems like this movie is like doing the exact same thing without having that previous thing to reference franchise to reference um but yeah no that's a very yeah like the 70s shtick is so tired my god isn't it It, but it's so it's like it's strange because it's like it it was this playground where you could just do anything you wanted like you could and it's like all all only fun cocaine stuff and then in the 80s it was not fun cocaine stuff boogie night sort of set that tone of that distinction between like 70s is fun 80s bad news (laughs) Boogie Nights, a film that uh, came out more or less contemporaneously to right. last days of disco, if, yeah. if memory serves, mm-hmm. uh, and offering two very distinct visions mm-hmm. of the decade. Well, very distinct locations, though, too, I would say. I think that's crucial. I think one being Los Angeles and, and one being... class backgrounds. Yeah, yeah, sure. Something which Mr. Stillman is, I won't say unique, but... Uh, awfully rare in being hyper-attentive to. I think that there is, with a lot of you know people participant in cinephile culture, so-called, there's not a taboo exactly, but it's one of those kind of received opinions that perhaps goes against the grain of uh, the larger world's kind of traditional wisdom which is that among cinephiles, we're, we're a bit like 
where we, we distrust the literary adaptation as a form, particularly when it is sort of high canonical literature. There's... It's not as pure somehow. It's not as... I mean, this... Well, that's like going back to Bazin. Like, he was always shitting all over that stuff. Because <laughs> he was responding to, like, two decades of that tradition in yeah. French cinema, which is like... It's, I've, 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 any, yeah, all these, like, dictums always come from some historically specific argument mm-hmm. and then we 50 60 years later we're still paying attention we still sure. obey them as if they matter and they just don't yeah well yeah i mean the entire kind of cahier group in the process of formulating a pushback against a sort of literary cinema somewhat ironically were using a kind of pedagogical model that had come to them through, you know, lycée education, where they're doing precisely what they had been taught. Uh, they were using the exact same methodology to break down film history at that point, 60-odd years old, uh, into a canon, precisely the same methodology that had been applied to literary history in the same way that they had been taught. The relative volume, uh, relative value, rather, of you know, uh, Balzac, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. But all of which is to say, like, uh, Love and Friendship, which is that most distrusted of uh, things, a literary adaptation of a big-name author, seemed to me the most sprightly and cinematic, uh, to use an absolutely dreadful word, (laughs) (laughs) film that I'd seen in ages. Well, cinematic is the opposite of literary, so it has to be good, obviously. I don't care. I'll just say it. I mean, the, the, the costumes were just the way that they interfaced with the interiors that are being shot, but that you never feel close. It's, it's, it's this really warm sense of space that you don't feel closed in by. Well, the costumes, it's really fantastic how Beckinsdale like emerges from her widow's weeds yes. very subtly <laughs> through the course of the movie until she's uh, like wearing... Just actually wearing scarlet toward the end. (laughs) Well, we've talked about this in a previous podcast, which we shouldn't get into too much, but it's interesting that Sunset Song opens next week as well. And I think that's also a fantastic adaptation of a very famous literary source, but also a great period piece as well, and very lived in one as well. It's another filmmaker who takes, you know, period detail very seriously and yet also creates a, a world for the film. Where not not that it plays by its own rules, but like there is a sense of space that is inhabited by the film. That's not just about you thinking about that moment in history. Aside from the locked down sense of masculinity, how do you feel Davies achieves that? Well, I guess I'm thinking I'm thinking about what you're describing in terms of love and friendship, in terms of costuming in Sunset Song. Like unless you know exactly when that novel set and know some reference, obviously the war becomes a relevant moment. But until then, like you, this is set on a farm. And costuming could be from 50 years pre- previous. It's not like there is some advance in costuming for farm wear at that moment that like sets it as exactly from that moment. I'm sure research was done to make that as accurate as possible. But after a while, even though you know this is set in the past, kind of the point is that it could be the 19th century because that's that way of living. Um, and that's certainly that way of being a man. Um, and whether or not modernity is happening elsewhere or on its way, that's not actually what's happening in that location, even though we're dealing with a woman who's basically an emerging modern woman. Um, I don't know. That's he, Obviously, that's a, he's, he's certainly attracted to 
a moment like that. And I think uh, Deep Blue Sea is sort of does something similar too, where there is another moment where the deeply modern woman who's still dealing with a society that's not. And so it's very important that it's said in that moment. But the period aspect, though he takes it very seriously, never overwhelms the drama or the characterization. And we should uh, we should also mention uh, another uh, another period adaptation coming down the pike, which is Mr. Ben Wheatley's uh, High Rise. <laughs> some rad seventies costuming in there. There is some rad seventies costuming <laughs> in there. There is uh, a fall queue at the end. There is a fall queue. Uh, industrial estates. It's. I mean. I haven't read the book in some time, so I can't say with absolute certainty if over over punctilious fidelity is the problem. I suspect that may be the case. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Which is not really at work in love and friendship. I mean, I've not really given a thorough going over uh, to the text, but significant liberties have been taken, not least in uh, making uh, Chloe Sevigny uh, American, who's threatened with return to Connecticut. (laughs) And married to Stephen Fry, it's too good. (laughs) (laughs) But but, but you were getting to something with High Rise. Probably not. (laughs) (laughs) But it does see the people who... I'm going to complete your thought then, or what I think was maybe what you're getting at, which is that I think that some of the better responses to High Rise have come from people who recently read the book or have a strong relationship to the book, and I think appreciate its, you know, its its accuracy or or whatever that would might mean in mm-hmm. terms of adaptation. Um, if not having read the book, I, I it left me like almost entirely cold. So. Yeah, I mean, I suppose if nothing else, it gave me a better grip on what was going on. I mean, to my mind, the problem with adapting High Rise is that David Cronenberg's Shivers was already made. And though it is not a direct adaptation, like many of the best adaptations, (laughs) uh, it borrows heavily from the spirit and is certainly taking what it needs from Ballard's novel and then doing something else entirely, which I think you could say is also the case uh, with Stillman's Love and Friendship, where certain themes, which have always been appealing to him, I mean, he's always had a a real soft spot for scoundrels, dissemblers, (laughs) the two-faced. Um... He's, you know, got a a great gallery of uh, rogues, either of the redeemable or irredeemable sort through the filmography. So he's, you know, taken what he's needed and made it his own. Uh, On the other hand, I should say, I'm sitting here having uh, just yesterday watched two Straubouillet adaptations, which are instances about as far going about as far away from what i'm talking about in terms of making it uh making a text one's own as you can get where it's almost a matter of completely making oneself subservient to the text and i certainly wouldn't say that these things don't work i mean they have an airtight system 
which they operate according to. This would be sort of the far, far counterpoint Mm -hmm. to someone possessing material or reshaping it. You mentioned Cronenberg. I think he's sort of underrated in terms of adaptation. Well, yeah. It certainly makes them his own. But then also at times there is a great fidelity. But then it's 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 those breaks from or almost like being so like, like I'm thinking of a dangerous method, which is very faithful, and yet at the same time in its adaptation to cinema it becomes something else, and that's in some ways the point of what you're watching. So. Well, I mean, though they resemble one another in almost no other way, I would say both Cronenberg and Stillman are filmmakers who are very very steeped in literary values and has anybody read cronenberg's novel by the way no have you no i I got excited there for a second (laughs) i want to i've not heard much that would suggest that it would be a rewarding experience well nathan lee nathan lee is a big he he uh he can appreciate and understand and write about cronenberg really coherently and he i think he enjoyed it as i recall Thinking about a lot of this in terms of adaptation, thinking about a lot of this in terms of period, um, I, I think in terms of like contemporary films that become period pieces or films about the modern moment that become de facto period pieces, it's interesting to think about using contemporary films in the future, in a future sense, as text to, to understand the past, which is inevitable and valuable but also i think incredibly limited too this idea that like you're going to take a film from ni- made in 1935 about 1975 as being indicative of what 1975 was like um eh, not always <laughs> i'm thinking I, I i was just in san francisco and there was some uh festival volunteer at the san francisco film festival who was lived in new york for a while and she missed new york and she's asking me all about it and she's saying how like she often when she rents movies or watches films online she's always watching New York movies from around when she used to live there, like the early to mid-90s or something like that, and which I get as an impulse. And maybe if I lived somewhere, not New York, I'd, I'd want to do that. But then I started thinking about early to mid-90s films set in New York and thinking about how... She's just watching Blue in the Face <laughs> over and over again. <laughs> or, well, if she was watching Party Girl, then I totally like, understand. Things like Zoolander. <laughs> I'm like, nothing about that is actually New York. Like, Times Square never looked like that. But like, yeah. But it does, but they're, they're trappings of like the fact that these two guys are models who live in this, you know, like they, they, they live in a way, they exist in New York and just how even the city looks is so completely different from the way it looks now. But it doesn't so look like the way it looked then. It did not. Really? <laughs> okay. No, but I'm saying like that's, that's what I'm sort of arguing is like I think that because films are have the requirements that they do to be made, you know, to, to, to be spectacles, to be, you know, to have their own worlds, I think just as often they do not actually betray their moment in any accurate way. There's, there's an element of like, oh, right, remember 1998 when that song was big, or remember when people had their hair like that. Like, that's sure. But in terms of place, it, it, it doesn't always work out that way. I think it works out just as, as, as often that, that, that there's a fantasy version of that moment, just as there's a fantasy version of 1955 when you're making a period piece. But we, we fantasize the, the, the present just as much as we fantasize the past. I appreciate and I totally understand that you, as a person who's lived here your entire life, most of your life, that you, know, you can point to a street scene in New York and be like, the streets are way too clean. 
and that's something that drives me insane all the time. It's like, why did you spray that down? Like, why did you remove the garbage? Like, this makes no sense. But what has happened to the city in terms of like gentrification and that even if certain aspects of how the city and its space are being depicted, there are just things that are there that are no longer there. Right. And I don't think, never, I guess my point is that I don't think in terms of like living arrangement with those people, that didn't exist then either. It was too expensive to live here then too. Like that hasn't, that's not a new thing. But because to me that almost makes me think of like the joke about friends, right? And how friends right. like lives in these just beautiful apartments across, you know, in the Upper West Side, I guess, wherever that was supposed to be. And they just work at a coffee shop. It never existed. It didn't exist right. in 1993 and it doesn't exist now. But Which that's is okay. something I'll briefly say Whit Stillman is very good at, the exigencies of oh, New yes. York real estate. Indeed. Indeed. And He's the, somebody who's been thinking about that for a very long time and finds a way of putting it into his Tom, Tom Townsend's sad little extra bedroom <laughs> in his divorcee mother's apartment. Indeed. Indeed. Well, and Dan, last, last Days of Disco, the, the as I recall, has a great, great. Uh, like railroad uh, exactly. apartment. I'm thinking about them dancing in that space, and it's a railroad. Would you say something like, okay, for instance, the taking of the Pelham 123, where it's like middle of go to hell era New York. And the whole, like, you know, the mayor, he emerges from a car and people just immediately start yelling at him and telling him, telling him to go to hell. Is that, do you feel like that has a sort of, that sort of capturing an ethos of that time better than, say, Woody Allen's Manhattan? I think they're actually quite similar, I would argue. I, I don't, I don't believe that Walter Matthau's tie in the taking of film <laughs> 123 ever existed. I simply refuse to believe that something like that could happen. <laughs> I think that Taking Pelham 123 is an exaggerated version of a certain vision of New York that existed. And I think that Manhattan announces itself as a romanticized version of a New York that wasn't existing. I think they're actually quite similar in that way. I think that you can see Manhattan in 1979 in Manhattan. You can also see Taking Pelham 123 in 75. And I would caution anybody against sort of saying one is actually, one, one existed and the other one didn't. I mean, I think short of short of documentary cinema or super low budget where like clearly no effort was made to change the environment, it's hard to make any determinations about something being historically accurate. I mean, I should say also that we're talking about two rather different things here, which is in the case of the taking of Pelham 123, a period piece that's become a period piece after the fact as opposed to a period drama a la Love and Friendship, which also then needs to be separated out from the period film, which is entirely being broadcast from a contemporary perspective as opposed to the period film, which is drawing on a period text. Mm -hmm. So right. in the case of Love and Friendship, we have, at least to a certain degree, the testimony of Jane Austen as to what a certain social strata in the British Isles was like at the end of the 18th, beginning of the 19th century, whereas... But it also wasn't a historical text. So there's already a, like a, you know, there's, there's liberties being taken most likely in her sense of that by making a fiction. Mm -hmm. Sorry. But you, you I should say also that, I mean, the film deals very much with... Uh, misrepresentations and the degree to which i mean it's it's a epistolary uh, novella which is made up of exchanges between the lady susan character her sort of confidant mrs johnson i believe who's played by chloe sevigny in the 
film and her more official exchanges uh, with relations of her late husband, so on and so forth. And depending on who is being written to, we get a very different sense of who this woman is, who she means to represent herself as, and in the process get something of a portrait in the round. And, I mean, this has to always be borne in mind when dealing with any historical text. There's a great deal being left out, always. Necessarily, you know? I don't know. I think, I think the better filmmakers embrace that. Embrace the fact that there are going to be other things left out, mm-hmm. and this is my frame. This is my this is my take on this. I'm not going to feel insecure and preoccupied by the fact that I don't have everything in here. Mm-hmm. And leading up to this conversation, I was thinking a bit about Scorsese and his adaptations, which are also really fascinating because they're clearly his, but they're also like so much effort being made to bring certain moments to life and bring certain environments to life. And he's also kind of taken on some impossible moments to recreate. And I think in terms of adaptation, that's pretty exciting the gangs of new york comes to mind as, as being like you can't really it's, i mean it's recreate that moment and he does everything he can to do so and the fact that it doesn't succeed entirely is part of why it's amazing i mean the breadth of sort of choices for adaptation you, know, you mentioned the herbert asbury volume mm-hmm. which is this strange collection of like newspaper man's apocrypha from mm-hmm. <laughs> New York City from the sort of draft riots era up until like the you know opening of the 1900s. Right. You also have adaptations of such noted pro stylists as Jake LaMotta and Jordan <laughs> Belfort <laughs> and yeah. Edith Wharton. And Edith Wharton. And then like and in, in a sense Hugo is a period piece. Too. I mean it is a period piece and it's an adaptation, but it, it's something that's adapted from a children's book into fantasy and so they're you know, I think he's. I think he, he's attracted to that. He's attracted to something that already is refracted, either by by fantasy or self representation in a clearly subjective way, or something that is is elusive in terms of th- there aren't really there's no moving pictures of, <laughs> of anything from Gangs of New York era, and he has he goes goes to town. Though, on, though Raul Walsh's regeneration comes pretty darn close to to that moment to getting that. I mean, yeah, it's a good. 50 odd years later but it's as close as you're going to get uh, to the like blind tiger uh kind of world of uh, the five points okay well how would you characterize uh walsh's approach walsh's approach is he goes downtown (laughs) and points a camera at some of these i mean it's not a world removed from how the other half lives. I mean, it's these absolutely desolate tenements and overcrowding that you wouldn't see uh, anywhere outside of, like, Beijing at the period, uh, or Peking, I should say. Uh, Like, if you want to talk about a now period piece, which is an extraordinary piece of kind of documentary evidence. I mean, Regenerations, your film, Musketeers of Pig Alley, I suppose, as well. I mean, even though it, it is a total cliche, the, the, that dictum that every film is a documentary of its own making, I mean, there's obviously a point at which it it transcends that. It, a, a, a filmmaker transcends that. and Transcends I, that, and it, it goes beyond a, a historical record and becomes... Right, I mean, or just like an unconscious historical record. 
Like there's a conscious, yeah, yeah. you know what I mean? It's, it's, they're all unconscious historical records in a sense. But but there's but I but I guess I'm I guess I'm making the argument that there are unconscious historical records of themselves far more than I think the historical records of a moment. Which is not to say that they're not historical records of a moment. I think you can have you can have great fun and get much out of trying to figure out what something is doing in the moment. But doing so means sifting through its own idea of its own moment. And that is not a small thing. In fact, that's an amazing thing and it's really complicated. So the idea that you're going to somehow see a moment through a narrative film and say, that's what 1990 is like, I I would caution against. Not to say, let's not think about that because its idea of itself can also be part of its moment. The mediated version of 1990, for example, that you'll receive from a film is part of 1990 as well. It is. self-definition mm-hmm. that uh, an era or someone uh, living in an era lends to absolutely. period depicted. Absolutely right. Yeah. Um, and about the business of that era too. There's also that, you know, there's no sort of pure sense of itself as long as there's sort of machinery that puts it, to, puts it in place. Um, it's important that you know, there's certain, there's certain things got even gotten made at that moment. There's a lot about yeah. that moment. Speaking of Davies and speaking of Stillman, we have two filmmakers that for many years had a really hard time finding funding for their films. And they had a really long break. And then all of a sudden, maybe because of Downton Abbey, who knows, they have they have these resources again to sort of pursue these passion projects that they had been working on in some cases for years. And there's an interest and people are sort of ready to see them now. Well, I don't, I, yeah, I mean, I, maybe. But I mean, I feel like, no, I don't, in a sense... There have always been. These are two filmmakers who've always been out of time. They're not of their moment in the way that is most profitable or popular. So the fact that they've ever had any moments of productivity and reception is is fantastic and remarkable, but not expected, which is unfortunately true. I think. Also, both sort of late bloomers, yeah. relatively, yes. as I'm thinking about it, sure. and maybe that's. I haven't actually thought this through at all, but maybe that is reflected to some degree in how distinct and immediately fully formed their sensibilities were kind mm-hmm. of coming right out of the gate. Mm-hmm. There's never any sense with either Davies or Stillman of a filmmaker trying to sort of fumble their way yeah. into themselves. Right, right, They like burst like Athena out of Zeus's forehead, like fully formed right. into the world. That's what's sort of interesting to me about Damsels in Distress because it almost feels like more of a first film than the others, in a sense. I don't want to go too far with that, because there's many reasons why that's not the case. But there is something about that that's a little fumbling in terms of tone, I think mm-hmm. you were referring to before, which is fa- which is really interesting. Yeah. Um, it's it's These are moments where I feel I'm on solid footing. These are moments where I may, I may not. And it's not my favorite film of his, but I find it really interesting for that. It, 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 it it's pushing itself, and he's pushing himself in a way that uh, an even younger filmmaker might. Yeah, I mean, as I, as I was saying, it's a movie that I find, I feel very sympathetic toward it. And I, I suppose what I was so just absolutely delighted with in, in Love and Friendship is this is something he's been very good with in the past and which you find fully at work in love and friendship is that he allows you the opportunity to feel so tenderly toward his like dramatist persona. I mean, I think of the, 
scene in Metropolitan, which is, I believe, the last scene that uh, Chris Eigenman's Nick Smith has, where he's going off to uh, spend, I think, the holidays with his wicked stepmother, and he's walking down the train platform uh, to, I guess, Metro North or something like this, and he turns and waves three times, turns and waves, and it's extraordinary, not only that that kind of sending off is allowed to that character, but that it's completely earned. And you have these wonderful curtain calls in Love and Friendship, which would be presumptuous on the part of almost anybody else. I mean, as often as not, when you get like callbacks in a movie, you're being like updated to the fate of some character you could give a shit less what happened <laughs> to them. Whereas it's it's a genuine pleasure to see these people again. And I don't know precisely how he achieves this, but uh, he is really able to sort of foster that sense of fondness and certainly in love and friendship doesn't lean on it too hard everything's just enough just just a dash just a soup <laughs> soul <laughs> what's 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 a film that you think of when you think of like a like that seems right for that moment that seems right for the for moment, moment that, that it was shot in whether or not it, was, like it was it wasn't a period piece but it seems like oh yeah that's right i was there for that or i have a sense of that that seems right that's hard to say. I don't think I've lived enough to I mean, make oh, that come distinction. Oh, Of course you have. I think, I think really, for any of us, when, you, when you're speaking to a film's like accuracy, yeah. there's a tiny, tiny, tiny pinhole <laughs> through which most of us look at the world sure. that we can actually speak like, sure. yes, that's accurate right. to that moment. Right. I mean, most of us have... A couple of years where we're actually relevant to the age that we live in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for my part, like, though certainly I didn't come from New York City, uh, didn't grow up in New York City, I feel like being, like, a bit of a fuck-up in the early to mid-1990s as an adolescent, I can look at Larry Clark's kids and say, yeah, that's real, that's true, and that's, like, the only movie I can do. It's like, I'm... I I buy that. What's fascinating for me is I saw that in New York when it came out and I was like, that's not right. That's not it. I don't think, you know, it felt like, it felt like pure fantasy to me. Now I totally respect most of the people I know who respond to that film, who feel like it got something right about that moment. Had your experience, right? I I hear it. All I know is that I was coming from a different place. Obviously that was not a film about me, even though I was similar age to some of the people involved in that movie where it just felt like a tarted up romanticized version or anti-romanticized version of the New York that I know. My my point, I suppose, is that we're all increasingly accustomed to factoring certain aspects of identity into our reception of a movie. We know, for the most part, one hopes that we have a kind of narrow bailiwick that we can speak to really knowing and we know not to overstep those bounds when it comes to issues of gender let's say of sexuality of race but we still presuppose and are still terribly arrogant when it comes to matters of the historical moment Mm -hmm. and we 
I, I say we as a sort of critical community, we will suppose to understand the experience of, you know, talking of Davies, yeah. of like a working class Liverpudlian in the 1950s, yeah. as though that's the easiest thing in the world. <laughs> right, right. When in fact, you know, probably, I don't know, I probably have more in common with a Russian born in 1980 than I have with, say, a Cincinnatian <laughs> born in 1880. Right. I sure. mean, sure. There, these are really vast, not unbridgeable, but vast sure. gulfs and gulfs that need to be respected. Right. You know, the art historical parlance, I think, is presentism, and it runs rampant uh -huh. in the way that we talk about the artistic product of mm -hmm. previous generations. Sure. Sure. Well said. Well, I have an answer for your question. Oh, good. Do it. Francis Ha. Uh-huh. Because I feel like I've said this to both of you in the past, uh, that there are lines... Into the microphone. Do it. I am. <laughs> 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 that there are, you know, there are lines in that film that have been said to me like, oh, well, you're not actually poor. And it's like, but I have no money in my bank account. I have negative dollars in my bank account. But yes, I do pay over $900 to live in a for a room in some some apartment in the one of the most expensive cities in the world. So, am I poor? I don't know. Um but that, and just yeah, that you know that she could sort of decide to max out all of her credit cards and go to Paris and then have a not good time, just have a just sort of have a time. Um And that, yeah. that seemed about a, a historical moment and a and a like a, a specific to a, to a place and time, yeah. Well, totally. I mean, you yeah. can, in looking at Baumbach, you can argue, I think he certainly has this idea of his own work that he's picking up the kind of contemporary ethnographic tradition laid down by Jean Astache. Uh, you have, you know, a very prominently placed Mother and the Horror poster that appears in The Squid and the Whale. Uh you could argue at length as to how successful he is in doing that, but I think that that's a big part of Baumbach's project is you know putting down a kind of contemporary uh, ethnography looking at the habits and rituals of a certain subset of the New Yorkese population. Yeah, and I, th I think the thing that he often gets criticized for is part of what I think makes him interesting whether he's successful or not. I mean, and I think you could say something similar about a lot of filmmakers, that there's that effort being made and it's being filtered through his own sense of it. It's being filtered through his own place in the world. And Francis Haas well, is, is great because there's another person's sensibility coming into it. Exactly, yeah. I and productively like, so, yeah. And I think what really makes the film special and this, this has the fact that she's a dancer, because so many films about dancers are about perfection you know, these women who are fighting to be absolutely perfect and then the damage that they do to their bodies or their social lives or, men, you know, mentally, whatever. Uh, and this is just about, uh, you know, she, she, it's not like she's not taking it seriously, but she has to find another path into it, which is this economy of working at, like, a dance nonprofit. And that's a reality for a lot of people who, you know, live and work with the arts. And also just her physicality, the fact that she was, in fa you know, she was a, trained as a dancer and what she brings to the performances that are in the film. And just even that the, the choreography wasn't anything that was planned. It was just they gave it to a separate dance company and then she really interpreted it in a way that made, and he shot it in a way that 
made it totally cohesive with the rest of the narrative. And I think that's... I like the example a whole lot because it's not something we're talking about in terms of location and costume. It's something else. It's about dialogue. It's about characterization. That's great. Yeah. But why do you think that certain films get chosen out of any film like that? Just you know, being, it's, I was like indicative of their moment. Of their yeah, era. exactly. Because it because again, it's like we're talking about like oh, well, there's so. there's always you know, it's always a matter of the somebody's vested interest in what that moment is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and but I mean culturally, like as a culture, I feel like there's yeah, we've chosen that. Yeah, that's right, but. That makes it even more dubious, most likely. That yeah. That. Well, that's what I, yeah, that's what I did. It's funny, like, in some ways, like, well, what, I, what's more dubious than this we choosing something? I don't recall being consulted <laughs> about this. But she means as a culture, yeah. this we. But, like, I mean, I, it's funny, like, I think of a film that in its moment was, oh, this is about the moment, like Saturday Night Fever, right? And then what it meant to the moment is still relevant. I actually think that how it depicts that part of New York in that moment is actually really, actually it is kind of valuable. Even though it was trying to capture a zeitgeist, I think that the way that movie is made and how it's put together and how it's directed and how it's performed performs a service in a sense of, of, of animating a moment that was happening at that time. But if it's I an rem- exaggerated version. If but- I remember rightly, wasn't, didn't it emerge that various aspects of that film which had been taken as kind of ethnographic fact were actually complete either composites or invention a composite like new york magazine does (laughs) (laughs) no totally no i mean i think that's true and i I don't know how soon after it was made that that came up but yeah i mean that's actually true my point is that you still revisit that movie and they're still looking at new york in a certain time in a certain place in certain locations where i'm like yeah that's that's what it looked like that, that existed, you know. There's, right, because there's, there's, it was also close, I should say, anecdotally, it, it was, that movie was shot very close to where you grew up. Right. right. So, so you have an intimate understanding well, of it. But, 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 but honestly, I mean, I was alive, but I was very young, so it's not like I have a great sense of Bay Ridge in that moment. Other side of the Guinea Gangplank, right? Yeah, the other side of the Guinea Gangplank, yeah. Cut that. <laughs> <laughs> Ruined everything. Um, so, uh, a bunch of grease balls coming over. <laughs> What happened to our farms? <laughs> um, <laughs> Damn you, Robert Moses! <laughs> Damn. No, but yeah. So yeah. So there are things about that that feel true. But also, I'm also thinking about things that. Okay, so so you think about certain New York movies, and we look at it, and we go, "Oh, graffiti on the subway." Clearly, that's of that moment, and often that's the case, right? They were just using subways. But there's the way that, like, the last sequence where he's on that train feeling love loss and sort of feeling sense of the sense of himself in New York and where do I belong, Manhattan or Brooklyn. It's something about those shots on that train and how beautiful they are that don't fit the stereotype of the gritty New York moment of graffiti on the subway. That in some senses that feels more accurate to that than most other things that sort of are indicative of the gritty New York seventies. Cause that's actually an incredibly romantic depiction and it makes sense for that character being from where he is and for his aspirations for that to be a romantic setting. Anyway, so so I guess it's things like that. There are reasons where Sedna Fever is a dubious text, but at the same time, there are things that come up from that that, um, that feel just as true. If not There's more. nothing but dubious texts, st- uh, except for Straubouillet. <laughs> <laughs> Those are they the only cool. texts with actual integrity. They were, they were ideologically <laughs> pure. They are pure as the driven snow. <laughs> yes. You capitalists. <laughs> Everything else is compromised. Yes. Purity. 
Yeah, what a few things, few things dirtier to me than the notion of purity. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Whit Stillman wouldn't agree with you. He wouldn't. No. He likes the notion the of cleanly, purity. The cleanliness and the good. Right. Always there, cheek and jowl with the aforementioned scoundrels. I think he has that ability which very few have. Not only can he put across the, you know, the scalawags, but he has that almost like like Dickens has it, C.S. Lewis has it. He can make good seem appealing, actually, <laughs> as opposed to you know writing white. Right, um, right. All right, well, we can end here. Really, we're getting we're getting to C.S. Lewis. Why not? Oh, okay. No, 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 sorry. No, we should probably. In the spirit of last ten films, let's each go around and say a film that we saw recently that we liked. Uh, let's see. Oh, so it was, oh, it was in San Francisco uh, on the jury for the documentary competition there, and so numerous films I liked. Um, I guess the film I could talk about is Notes on Blindness, which premiered at Sundance, but I didn't know too many people who saw it and hear too much about it. It, it sort of takes a similar tactic as The Arbor, um, in that it uses uh, primary source audio and has people lip sync basically to to that audio, and it's this professor who's going rapidly blind in the 1980s and decided to uh, do sort of an audio memoir or journal, keep a journal of, of what he's working through. Being somebody who's incredibly thoughtful and soulful, it's not just this happened, that happened. It's him working through the metaphorical implications of what he's going through and, and how it's affecting his body and his relationships. And so the cinematic depiction of that is very, very interesting. There's no easy answer to that. And it doesn't take any strict, like, we're going to not let you see things or where everything's going to be distorted all the time. It doesn't do that at all. But it uses the lip-syncing approach, I think, very productively. Because there's a, there's a, we use the word slippage to talk about two areas. There's a slippage there in terms of you knowing that that person's not actually saying that. And yet there is an approximation, which is important, just like the whole film is an approximation of somebody's experiences in the site. So I, I found that a really, really interesting movie, and I don't know, and I think it, I think it also really works as an, as a narrative film, so I'd love for it, for it to have some sort of life, but I was excited about it. I should, uh, I should say I was goofing a little on the Straubouillet, but that's a absolutely epical series that's going on down, at, uh, down in MoMA, or up at MoMA, depending where you are situated. Um... And in the last week also, uh, I've been digging through a lot of material in preparation to write about this wonderful two-week and some change series that's happening at Anthology Film Archives on Quebec Direct Cinema, Quebec Cinema Direct if you prefer, um, some of which I was acquainted with before I had taken a wonderful documentary class when I was an undergraduate from uh, Dr. William Lafferty, who just retired, I think, in the last month. So I had been acquainted with Lonely Boy, the sort of backstage documentary about uh, Paul Anka making his way up from Atlantic City to uh, Freedom Land Amusement Park in the Bronx. But I was just really knocked out by the kind of some total of the accomplishment, just the like 1960s programs in there. I'll mention in particular uh, the film La Lutte, uh, which uh, gives us some glimpses of professional wrestling uh, taking place at Montreal's Forum. Uh, but it's just a really wonderfully uh, fecund period that's really uh, 
nice uh, and a nicely put together program. It's not for whatever reason. Uh, as I was telling people throughout the week that that's what I was watching. Like, yeah, I'm watching a lot of Quebec direct cinema. People looked at me a bit askance. <laughs> but they're really, like, wonderfully exciting movies. And in terms of just pitching them on subject matter alone, like, oh, it's about copper ore miners in northern Quebec. It doesn't sound terribly sexy, I confess. <laughs> but the elasticity with which the camera moves particularly if one is comparing these films to what is going on in contemporary commercial cinema, where really dry rot is, for the most part, setting in to Hollywood filmmaking and everything is sort of in the headlock of a out-of-date uh, decorum. These things, it's just a very exciting bunch of movies. So check out the Quebec Cinema Direct. I was, I was envious of you having made your way through those and really interested in those. So yeah, the, the, try to catch if up you're not that. in New York, the uh, National Film Board has a very nice website where you can watch some nice 1080p of those streams. Oh, that's good to know. Yeah. Thank you. Because they actually have funding for arts up north. Yeah, not that much. They, they throw a lot of money at film. Yeah, less than they used to. More than... All right. <laughs> Say your movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, recently I saw, as part of the Stonewall series, I saw Victim, which was a really excellent, it was a movie that I was totally with up until the last two minutes of it, which is a really shame, but I think it does a really excellent job of showing, not just being sort of a tight little crime drama that has like this social element to it, but it really... There are points in which I really almost started crying because this film really takes you back to a time where it's like the toll of being gay, being a homosexual and when it is not only just criminalized but uh, just so socially unacceptable and just seeing the toll that it takes on people who, you know, characters who kill themselves because they can't deal, they can't possibly deal with the repercussions of it or just dreading of being thrown back in jail again or you know you know physically mentally the stress like it does a really nice job of that except un until like the last two minutes of the film so i recommend going to see that but thank you both for coming thank you for having us you've been listening to the film comet podcast produced by violet luca and nicholas rapold with music by greg Anji. you can subscribe to this podcast on itunes or stitcher Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine. Film Comment, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years.